Good evening, everybody. My name is Francisco Panizza. I am the head of the LEC Ideas Latin American International Affairs Program, and I will be chairing this meeting. LEC Ideas is a center for the study of international affairs, diplomacy, and strategy. Its mission statement is to use LEC's intellectual resources to study international affairs through world-class scholarship and engagement with practitioners and decision makers. It is in the spirit of this mission that we have organized this evening's panel on UK-Argentina relations. Also 30 years have passed since the South Atlantic conflict. Disagreements over the Falklands Malvinas Islands continue to cast a big shadow over relations between the two countries. And, if anything, tensions have risen over the past few months. Rather than revisiting the events leading to the war, the discussion this evening will hopefully focus on what diplomatic steps can be taken to reduce current tensions and improve long-term relations between the United Kingdom and Argentina. We will begin with presentations by our two speakers, each of whom will speak for about 20 to 25 minutes, after which the moderator, Professor George Phillips, will comment on the speaker interventions. Thereafter, be, they will answer questions from the audience. Questions must be submitted in writing. On the piece of paper, please write your questions as well as your name and, if appropriate, your affiliation and to whom the question is addressed. If you need paper or pens, please indicate that to our staff. When you have written down your questions, please pass the paper down to the right end of your row, where they will be collected at the end of the second presentation. Please note that there may be not, not be time to answer all submitted questions, but we'll seek to make a selection that is representative of those submitted. Our two speaking this evening are Ambassador Alicia Castro and Dr. John Hughes. Ambassador Castro is the Argentine ambassador to the United Kingdom. Before her arrival in London this spring, she served for five years as Argentine ambassador to Venezuela. Prior to her diplomatic appointments, Ambassador Castro served for eight years as national deputy in the Argentine Congress. Dr. John Hughes is senior visiting fellow in the Department of Government of the LSE. Before that, he was a career diplomat in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, for which he served in different roles in Argentina, Venezuela, and the United States. Between 2004 and 2008, Dr. Hughes was the British ambassador to Argentina. The moderator, Professor George Phillips, is Professor of Comparative and Latin American Politics at the LSE. He's the author of several books and numerous articles on the politics of Latin America. I will now, now invite Dr. John Hughes to present his views. Thank you. Francisco, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and thank you also to George for the invitation to participate at the LSE. I declared my allegiances many years ago. I was at the LSE. Uh, in, that days, in those days, it was more, as I explained to the ambassador, 
more like a dump than the excellent building we're now in. Um, but in the 60s, we got on with it in a revolting way. Never mind. Uh, uh, can I also say how delighted I am to welcome Ambassador Castro, uh, not just to the LSE, but to the UK. For too long, we didn't have an Argentine ambassador. It's lovely to have you here. Uh, and can I also, at the same time, pay tribute to Oswaldo Marsico, who held the fort for the Argentine embassy so well during the absence of an ambassador. Um, now, I'm glad to say I hold no official position, so I'm speaking personally. Uh, the question that was posed by Francisco <coughs> George was, UK-Argentina, is there a way forward? It's a simple question. The answer, in many senses, should be simple as well. Uh, why, you may ask. Um, I suspect there are, and in fact I know because I recognise, quite a few Anglo-Argentines in the audience. So you will know better than I could ever explain the close relationship historically between the UK and Argentina. Probably the closest relationship that the UK has had with a Latin American country. I needn't go into all the details because A, you know it, and B, I don't have time. But it does seem to me worth remarking how special that relationship can be and still is. Um, during my time in, in Buenos Aires, I was fortunate enough to go down to the province of Chubut. Now, this may not be known to many of you. This is arguably the most important province in the whole of Argentina. And for one simple reason, it has a Welsh colony there. <laughs> uh, and I have to say, one of the most emotional moments of my life was being in Trelew. Uh, watching a rugby match between Argentina and Wales. And as we were the visiting team, the Welsh national anthem was sung first, and then the Argentine anthem thereafter. And the person who sang both anthems, he sang both, sang them in his native languages. And there is nowhere else as a Welshman you can go anywhere in the world and have somebody singing our anthem in his native language. So it's, it's quite a rather special relationship. Um, but there is an elephant in the room, and that elephant is, in a sense, why we are here today, to talk about the Falklands Malvinas. I've given it the double title. Thereafter, I will talk about the Falklands, and I'm sure Ambassador Castro will talk about the Malvinas. We've sort of arranged that between us. This is only the rehearsal. Now, this dispute has been around for a rather long time, and what I thought I'd like to do was look at, um, in sort of a functional way, four ways in which people have tried to look at the dispute. Firstly, legal. Um, there have been various attempts and various exchanges between the UK and Argentina over the years about the possibility of the suggestion by one side, the suggestion by the other, to, um, to either have arbitration, go to the International Court of Justice, in the most recent British case in 1955, in terms of the dependencies of the Falklands. Uh, 
they got nowhere. They haven't actually happened. Uh, now, a cynic might say, well, that's clearly because neither side is certain about their sovereignty over the islands. Uh, I beg to differ. I think the more likely explanation is quite simple. It is that the Falklands, the issue of the Falklands, has too high a priority, too high an impact for either Argentina or the UK or the Falklands to believe that this is something you litigate on. Because whether it's litigation in domestic court or litigation in international court, one thing is certain, you can't be 100% certain you're going to win. So it seems to me it's not a reflection on the claims of either, but more the reality of the risks. The second one, uh, and how serious this was, one can never tell. One looks back at history. It was in 1843, there was a commercial initiative. Seemingly, the idea was that in, 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 uh, in respect of a, of a bill owed to the, the, bearing, the bearing bank, now defunct, as you will know, bearing brothers, uh, that Argentina owed two, more or less two million pounds. And the idea was that, uh, and raised by the charge de fer of, uh, of Argentina in London to the foreign secretary, Lord Aberdeen at the time, uh, perhaps we can do a swap. You forgive the debt, we'll stop claiming the Falklands. It went nowhere, it was rejected by Aberdeen, and it passed into the mists of time. Not in the mists of time was the third area, diplomatic negotiations. That was in a period much more recent at the time when I was at the IOC, uh, 1966 to 1982. And there were direct diplomatic relations between Argentina and the <coughs> UK. They centred on what? Well, they centred on two main issues. A lease arrangement, whereby sovereignty would pass to Argentina, but the UK would exercise control uh, through a 99-year lease. Another idea that was discussed in some detail was the concept of a condominium, joint sovereignty, dual nationality, which might or might not have led to the transfer of sovereignty. Now, the British negotiated directly with uh, Argentine diplomatic colleagues over this um, on the basis that they would consult the Falkland Islanders. And that point was made public quite early on by the then foreign Secretary Michael Stewart in the House of Commons in 1968. And he said publicly the views of the islanders would be paramount. Those were negotiations that continued until 1982, and I'll come back to 1982 a bit later. So there's legal, there's commercial, there's diplomatic. A lot of effort has gone in to try and sort, try and sort this problem out. There's also been the military. In June 1770, not Argentina, it was Spain. Spain uh, discovered that there was a, a British base at Port Egmont, and a rather large number of <coughs> Spanish soldiers persuaded, uh, in inverted commas, the British to leave their base. Uh, a year later, uh, and 
to avoid what looked like the possibility of war between uh, Britain and Spain at the time, there was a treaty which allowed uh, the, the Brits to take back the base at Fort Egmont. January 1833, and this is more famous, uh, a British ship called the Cleo arrived in the Falklands uh, and forced an Argentine ship, the Sarandi, to leave and to take with it the garrison that had been put there. No shots were fired and the civilians who were on the islands were asked whether they wanted to go on the Cleo, on the Sarandi, sorry, or stay. Some went, the majority stayed, and those civilians were of many nationalities. The final military attempt to resolve this problem was of a different nature and a different scale because it was much more recent. That was the uh, Argentine invasion of uh, 1982. Uh, that was at a time, as I said, when Britain and Argentina had been negotiating directly. Uh, it was at a time when uh, the Falklands, which uh, many people in Britain regard as small, but having been there, let me tell you, it's small by Latin American standards, not by European standards. The Falklands is the size of Wales. I would know that, wouldn't I? Um, <laughs> but, but think about it, Wales has a population of 3 million, and we think Wales is fairly underpopulated. The Falklands, at the time, had a population of 2,000 in a similar area, which shows uh, how how large it is in relation to the population. And the British Defence Forces at the time, some 30-odd Royal Marines. When the invasion actually took place, they were up to uh, about 70, simply because it just happened at a time when one group was taking over from another. Um, the Argentine military government uh, invaded successfully, and for nine weeks, uh, <coughs> the Falkland Islands were subject to Argentine controlled by a military Argentine government. Um, unfortunately, it was necessary, despite Security Council resolutions, binding resolutions, the then Argentine, but I emphasize military government, uh, refused to withdraw, uh, and it was necessary for Britain to send a task force. The really unfortunate thing was it then meant that whereas in previous military encounters that I've mentioned, there was no loss of life. There was loss of life on both sides. Some 900 people lost their lives. But even that did not resolve the dispute. Uh, here, let me just digress ever so slightly and say, in order to set the seal, scene, um, that it didn't resolve the dispute. It resolved the situation with uh, British control of the Falklands, <coughs> but it did have a significant effect on the way in which Britain thereafter took a stance on negotiations with Argentina over the Falklands. Firstly, the war raised awareness, the conflict raised awareness in the UK of the existence of the Falklands. <coughs> Many British people, frankly, didn't know about it. Uh, it made clear to all succeeding British governments that never again would the Falklands be defenceless. 
and it changed the dynamics. It changed the dynamics in a way that pre the invasion, Argentine British diplomats would sit down and talk about the Falklands and so on. With the backstop of going to the islanders to consult them thereafter. The effect of the invasion was to turn that round the other way. There would be no discussions over sovereignty between British and Argentine diplomats unless and until that was the express will of the Falkland Islanders. And it seems to me that it's important to hang on to that very, very significant change. Um, I think I've mapped out over these years it's been one of those problems that's seen without resolution, with not solvable. Um, and you might ask, why isn't it solvable? Uh, I think the nub of it is because it's a clash of principles. Ambassador Castro may well explain that Argentina rests much of its case on the principle of territorial integrity. For Britain, it's a matter of human rights. The Falkland Islanders, the people who live on those islands, are protected by the UN Charter, which says Article 1-2, to develop friendly relations among nations based on respect for the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples. Buttressed by the covenant on civil and political rights of 1976, paragraph 1-1, uh, paragraph all peoples, all peoples have the right of self-determination. By virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. It goes on, Article 2. All peoples may, for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources. In no case may the people be deprived of its own means of subsistence. Now, clearly the Falklands isn't easily solved, no matter the, the goodwill between Ambassador Castro and me. We're not going to solve it this evening. But it seems to me <laughs> there is a way. There is a but. Many, uh, I, I, I approach this with humility. If you'd asked me when I was at the LSE four years ago, would, would there be uh, a South Africa that exists the way it is today, would there be a peace process in Northern Ireland in the way it is? I would have said, you're mad. It's, it's just not possible. So I think you know, we need to bear that in mind when we look at this unresolvable issue. So what I'd like to do is suggest that um, we draw from the way in which people have attempted to deal with unresolvable issues and look at some of the elements that they brought in to help them try and resolve them. I'll pick out three. The first, 
inclusive discussion. Bring in all the parties, all the parties required to lead to a settlement of the dispute. You can see it wouldn't be the case in the issue we're talking about, but in some cases that has meant bringing into the table, bringing into the negotiations, people otherwise known as terrorists. Although terrorists, as we know, some terrorists are the people's freedom fighters. You take your choice. But in some issues that I've mentioned, you can see where that was an important, uh, an important act. Now, in terms of the people around the table, my understanding of the Argentine attitude is that this is a bilateral dispute between Argentina and the United Kingdom. The UK is regarded as a colonial power, so no colonists need be consulted. I must say, I find that difficult to believe in the 21st century. What we are saying, what Argentina seems to be saying, is that some 3,000 people, many of whom can trace their ancestry back over 170 years of living in the Falklands, with their own freely elected government, can have no right of representation in discussions about their future. For me, it is clear, personal view, that there are three parties to this dispute. We are looking at a triangle, not a bilateral relationship. Another element that sometimes comes up when looking at these sort of disputes, nothing is ruled out. Now, Argentina says it wants to negotiate with the UK. Uh, we're both diplomats, well, I'm an ex-diplomat, uh, and negotiation is what we do. Uh, and that sounds eminently reasonable. Let's sit down round the table, even if we configure it three ways rather than two ways, and negotiate. But Argentina wants us to negotiate with a predetermined outcome. It's negotiations about the transfer of sovereignty. It's not negotiations about whether the Brits have sovereignty or Argentina has sovereignty. It's about moving sovereignty through the negotiation from the UK to Argentina. The Argentine constitution, the transitory uh, clause in the Argentine constitution is abundantly clear on this point. I give you the English translation. The Argentine nation ratifies its legitimate and inalienable sovereignty over the Malvinas, South Georgia, South Sandwich Islands, the recovery of said territories, and the full exercise of sovereignty is a permanent and unrelinquishable objective of the Argentine people. For the UK, current position, as I said, post the invasion of the Falklands, is that there can be no negotiations unless and until the Falkland Islanders so wish it. That recognises the human rights of the people who live there. 
but it also very clearly gives the Falkland Islanders the ability to stop negotiations starting. So in a sense, the situation is rather clear. Argentina is flexible on starting a process of negotiation, but inflexible on the outcome. It must lead to Argentine sovereignty. The UK is inflexible on the process of starting the negotiation, but flexible on the outcome. The UK position gives the Falklands a veto on the process of starting a negotiation. You can see the rigidities there on all sides. Finally, building up trust and confidence. If, you, if, you, if it's difficult to get people in a room to talk, very often what you try to do is build up some trust and confidence before they get in the room to start negotiating. Uh, now, in a sense, this was something on which Argentina and Britain agreed. It was the heart of the resumption of diplomatic relations, which was some seven years after the Argentine invasion. It was called the Sovereignty Umbrella. It meant that Argentine diplomats, British diplomats, and sometimes with Falkland Islanders in the room as well as part of the British delegation, could talk to each other and reach bilateral agreements without prejudice, without prejudice to the Argentine claim or the British claim. And that led, in practice, to a number of quite important measures that were agreed uh, amongst the parties. It led to an agreement to exchange military information, to work together on South Atlantic fisheries, to have sustainable stocks, uh, straddling stocks, they're in Argentine waters, but fish and, and squid don't know whether they're in Argentine waters or British waters, so they go from one to the other. Um, so it was a practical way of sustaining fish stocks for the benefit of the Falkland Islanders and Argentine fishermen. Agreements on charter flights, on a scheduled flight which still exists from Chile, from Santiago, through Ponta Arenas to the Stanley, and once a month goes through Rio Vajeros. And cooperation over offshore activities, hydrocarbon. That was a system that was building up confidence. With the election of President Nestor Kirchner, uh, who I will, will say personally, I thought did a tremendous job at the time in helping revive the Argentine economy. So nothing to do with what we're talking about now. But just to put it into context, uh, I thought he did an outstandingly good job. Uh, but ne President Nestor Kirchner, uh, and subsequently present Christina Kirchner have taken a rather different view. They have decided, and remember they, they were elected presidents, Argentina is a democratic country, it's fully entitled to change its policy if it so wishes. But that decision was one to 
scaled back on the cooperation I've just mentioned that was part of the sovereignty umbrella. So it led to the ban on charter flights in 2003, <coughs> the withdrawal of cooperation on fisheries in 2006, the unilateral repudiation of cooperation on hydrocarbons in 2007, presidential decree in 2010, which seeks to curtail the right of freedom of navigation and the right of innocent passage. And in 2011, a hydrocarbons law, domestic legislation by Argentina, seeking to penalise companies doing business with the Falklands. In other words, we are now at a situation where the sovereignty umbrella, which was the basis of one of the bases of re-establishing diplomatic relations, is withering on the vine. Arguably, and I have to speak frankly, the climate over the issue of the Falklands now is worse than at any time since diplomatic relations were resumed. What then of the prospects for the future? Of the three possible elements or indicators I've mentioned for dispute resolution, in my view, in all three, none can be answered easily or quickly. And as I've indicated, this is not a question of saying that rigidity is just on the Argentine side or just on the British side. In some, there are rigidities on three sides. What then are the prospects for resolving the unresolvable? My personal view is that step one has to be to lower the temperature, to lower the rhetoric, to start again building trust and confidence. I very much hope that perhaps with the end of the 30th anniversary uh, of the war, of the conflict, that Argentina will revise its policy of trying to pressure the UK and isolate the Falklands. Because frankly, neither, in my judgment, will work. A new sovereignty umbrella or some similar mechanism, it doesn't have to be exactly that, is now needed more than ever to build up trust and cooperation in the South Atlantic, which used to be there and is there no longer. And let's not forget that on one issue, the British position is not inflexible. It's not inflexible about outcome. Self-determination means what it says. It's up to the Falkland Islanders to decide their future. To stay as an overseas dependent territory, to become independent, or to become Argentine. The ball is in their court, and it should be in their court. And a full understanding by all parties of that essential fact seems to me the only possible way of moving forward to resolve the dispute. Otherwise, what? 
Otherwise, we are left with the only other alternative, managing the dispute in a way that does least damage to the overall UK-Argentine relationship. Thank you. Ambassador, your. Thank you very much. As uh, Ambassador Hughes said, it's been more than three years without an Argentine ambassador to the United Kingdom, and my government is keen to seize this opportunity to rebuild and to strengthen bilateral relations. That's why we are so grateful to the London School of Economics for this opportunity to share with Mr. Hughes this uh, discussion over our bilateral relations with the future in mind. And I also want to thank Professor Phillips and Dr. Panisa. As been said, the relation between the Argentine and the British peoples had been for many years a rich and strong one in terms of cultural, social, and economic links. We also have a wide common positive agenda on multilateral issues, such as protection and promotion of human rights, the International Criminal Court, transnational organized crime, fight against terrorism, climate change, etc. Since the mid-19th century, Argentina has offered great opportunities to British business. Today, our country is experiencing an unprecedented growth that further <coughs> expands the opportunities for the global economy. After 2003, Argentina's GDP has increased at an average rate of over 800 yearly, ranking amongst the world's fastest growing economy. Exports have grown from $30 billion in 2003 to $85 billion in 2011. Inputs grew from $15 billion to $74 billion. Investment increased at higher rates than GDP. This is growth with social inclusion with a continual fall of the unemployment rate which was just 6.7% by the end of the last year. This is Argentina today, a democratic country, a country of opportunities in a context of a gloomy economic outlook for a large part of the world. Despite the global financial crisis, Latin America has continued to grow and poverty has continued to fall. The IMF recently increased its growth forecast for Latin America and its 600, 600 million citizens, a population larger than European Union. The greatest concentration of democratic governments outside Western Europe is located there, and U UK tourism to the continent is increasing. I am quoting Mark Dawn in his article, <coughs> William Hague must get post-colonial on Latin America seen in the Independent in May 2012. 
and he ends by saying, we can be partners in this historic reconfiguration or we can bang the old empire drum and be ignored. The Foreign Office has recently stated that it's willing to revitalize and elevate relations with Latin America as a whole. To do so, you have to take our concerns into consideration. We need a gesture of political engagement. As a region, we are very unhappy to have a colonial enclave in the south of our continent. As Simon Jenkins stated, and this night I chose to quote only prominent British citizens, Simon Jenkins stated, distant colonies are a post-imperial anachronism. Britain will have to negotiate. <coughs> As our President Cristina has pointed out, Malvinas is not only an Argentinian cause. Malvinas is a regional cause. Malvinas is a global cause. By refusing to have a dialogue with Argentina, Britain is turning its back to Latin America as a whole. There will be no easy way for the United Kingdom to revitalize its relations with our region without settling the, settling the so-called Malvinas Falkland question. The sovereignty dispute between Argentina and the United Kingdom is 179 years old. It dates from the time that Great Britain, in much the same way it invaded Buenos Aires in 1806 and 1807, invaded and took the Malvinas Islands by force in 1833. It expelled Argentina in a time of peace and excellent relations between both countries. The Argentine rights inherited from Spain according to international <coughs> law principles of succession of states and uti posseretis juris can be traced back to the discovery by the Magellan expedition and a number of international treaties signed by European nations from the 15th century onwards. Among these are the American Treaty of 1670, the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, and the Treaty of San Lorenzo. The three were signed by England and confirmed the South Atlantic with all its coasts and islands as an exclusive Spanish jurisdiction. The Spanish crown behaved as the holder of sovereignty of the Malvinas, and when its rights were challenged, it swiftly acted to reaffirm them. This was the case in 1749 when the Spanish ambassador in London uncovered a secret project by the English to settle there, protested and obtained its cancellation. <coughs> the same happened with the settled port Louis by France. Since that time, Spain decided to appoint a resident official in the islands with direct dependency to Buenos Aires. A total of 32 Spanish governors carried out the administration of the islands for 46 years. It was one of these Spanish governors who found in 1770 a clandestine English small settlement that already uh, Mr. Hay referred to, named Port Egmont, and forced it out. This was a brief settlement upon which the United Kingdom has later built its claim. Spain and English in England were then in the brink of war. It was avoided in 1771 
when the King of Spain agreed to restore the English in Port Egmont only and reserved his sovereignty over the whole archipelago of the Malvinas. As part of this agreement, it was negotiated that the English were to quietly pull out from Port Egmont, which they finally did in 1774. I'm sorry that history is more boring than future, but we have to do some <laughs> history here. It could seem that we have different points of views, but instead, I will quote the Duke of Wellington, for instance, and uh, as you know, as we know, after independence from Spain, Argentina acted as the holder of sovereignty in the Malvinas Islands. Measures such as a formal act of possession in 1820, legislation on fisheries, the granting of lands in the islands to private individuals that started to settle there, the creation of a political and military command, and the appointment of a resident governor in 1829 were public and known in Britain. Only in 1829, after more than 60 years of unchallenged Spanish and then Argentine administration of the islands, the British government decided to protest the creation of the politically, political and military command. But it's interesting to see that in the build-up of this decision, there were serious doubts at the very top of the British government. Let me quote a letter dated 25 July 1829, addressed to the Foreign Office by the then Prime Minister, Duke of Wellington. I quote, It is not clear to me that we have ever possessed the sovereignty of all these islands, referring to the Falkland Malvinas. The convention between Spain and England of 1771 certainly goes no further <coughs> than to restore to us Port Egmont, which we abandoned nearly 60 years ago. End of Wellington quote. Despite these facts, Britain decided to take the islands by force in 1833. Argentina immediately protested and ever since, and not obtaining any response in the 19th century proposed an international arbitration. This was also rejected by the United Kingdom. And we understand why. It is consequence of the weakness of the British titles, accurately reflected in several internal documents of the Foreign Office and the Colonial Office in the early 20th century. Let me quote again one of them, a memorandum of 1911, signed by Ronald Campbell, head of South America in the Foreign Office. <coughs> I quote, who had, the best, who had the best claim at the time when we finally annexed the islands? I think, I think certainly the United Provinces of Buenos Aires. And this was the responsible for this politics. Spain has occupied the islands for approximately 30 years after our evacuation of Port Egmont. The su subsequent Spanish evacuation was followed by a period of 10 years during which the islands were uninhabited before the United Provinces focused their attention on them and they occupied in one form or another for about 10 years before 
they were expelled by us. And he concludes, we cannot easily make a good claim and cleverly we have made every effort to avoid discussion the issue with Argentina. Argentina instead has never had and will never have such doubts on our, of our, on our rights. That's why we will never avoid any discussion, public or private. In 1965, the United Nations recognized the existence of a sovereignty dispute and called for negotiations between the two countries by resolution 2065, which makes an express reference to the interests and not to the wishes of the inhabitants of the islands. A negotiating process then started in Argentina from 1965 to 1982, made a great effort to improve communications between mainland and the islands with a view on the interests of the islanders and the quality of their everyday life. A number of actions taken by Argentina proof of such constructive <coughs> approach. We built the airstrip in the islands, the establishment of direct flights between mainland and the islands, the sending of teachers to teach Spanish, the granting of scholarships for the islanders, the provision of free health in the British hospital in mainland. And at the same time, as uh, Mr. Hugh was saying, the issue of sovereignty was present at the negotiating, negotiating table. There were talks about a transfer of sovereignty to Argentina, a British proposal to establish a condominium in the islands, an Argentine proposal for joint administration, a British proposal of leaseback, meaning in practice Argentine, Argentine sovereignty and British administration for an extended period of time a kind of Hong Kong solution. There were documents drafted, agreed and even, and even initialized by the British and Argentine negotiators. Matthew Paris, a former member of parliament, referred to those times in an article in the Times of February 2010 called Think of Hong Kong, Give the Falklands Back, Give the Falklands Back, recalls that those were the discussions Tory ministers were discreetly pursuing with Argentina in the early 80s. And he said, now we are all in Britain and Argentina, older and wiser. Isn't it time to return to those ideas? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we are enough wiser, but we are enough older. Yeah, that's true. That's we, are old, we are old enough. So I think we should definitely go back to, to those ideas. After the war in 1982, the United Nations kept urging the two sides to resume negotiations. And then, believe me, no one needs to remind us, Argentina, how cruel, how stupid that war was. The junta that de facto ruled Argentina, which at the same time tortured and murdered thousands of Argentinians to impose an economic model of radical budget cuts and misery, attempted, with no success, 
to use the war to improve its domestic image and to remain in power. Don't shoot me, Mr. Tatar. <laughs> 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 Perfect <laughs> Thank you. The war cost many lives. 649 deaths on the Argentine side, 255 on the British side. Many wounded, 449 Argentina, Argentines and 264 British committed suicide. The war is a tragedy. The behavior of the military junta was inexcusable from start to finish and those who have acted irresponsibly stand accused. Argentina is now a democratic country. President Cristina is very popular, has just been re-elected. Our government is well known for policies of human rights. And my question is, if previous UK government saw seek to have dialogue with a fascist dictatorship, how paradoxical it is that today they refuse even to contemplate negotiations with an established and democratic elected government. By ignoring the repeated calls for the United Nations, the Organization of American States, Mercosur, UNASUR, CELAC, SICA, the Ibero-American summits, the South American summits with Arab and African countries, the G77 plus China, that means 131 countries, and the recent statement by a group of Nobel Prize winners. The United Kingdom is showing its utter disregard to the principle of peaceful <coughs> settlements of disputes, one of the fundamental principles of international law. <coughs> and I put a point here because <coughs> Ambassador Hughes said that we have a clash of principles. And it seems to me that he was, it was like affirming, we have a controversy, but because I am right and you are wrong, I will not, ne not negotiate with you to solve it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a very weird approach. <coughs> and then, uh, also, he, he also re referred so different kinds of flexible moments, let's say, that Argentina is flexible to start a negotiation that firm in the outcome, and instead Britain is unflexible in starting the negotiations. I really, I've been all my life in, in the trade union movement, and then in parliament, I'm really an advocate for negotiations, but I really never ever saw a negotiation that doesn't start. <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing that he mentioned as an, as an obstacle to, for the negotiations is the Constitutional Clause of 1994. And this cannot be justified on the grounds that Argentina has inscribed its sovereignty claim into our 1994 reformed constitution. After all, London refused to negotiate with Argentina before 1994. <coughs> And more fundamentally, it is to be expected that countries would establish 
as a matter of domestic law a claim to any disputed territory. territory. The outcome of negotiations would then require either country to, for instance, modify its domestic law in order for the compromise <coughs> to enter into force. Simply put, for, an, for instance, a domestic claim to the disputed territory cannot constitute an obstacle to negotiations. And those are the, the, the things that I can remember for your brilliant intervention. Many countries consider Malvinas to be Argentine territory, including all and every country in our region, Latin America. Indeed, an overwhelming majority of countries have called on the United Kingdom and Argentina to enter into negotiations. Maintaining the statu quo is thus more than an obstacle to normal relations between Argentina and the United Kingdom, two countries that have traditionally maintained strong links and it adversely, as I said before, affects British relations with the entire region. British government re remains steadfast that there will be no sovereignty negotiations with Argentina unless the islanders so request, because the right to self-determination must be respected. Argentina supports, in general, the principle of self-determination as established by the UN Charter. But let me explain, and we have to be very clear on this, not every human community is considered to possess this right. Self-determination. <laughs> Britain's claims find little support for the international community. No United Nations resolution related to the Malvinas Falkland has ever referred to self-determination in stark contrast with resolutions concerning decolonization elsewhere. Indeed, Britain's refusal to make any attempt to settle the sovereignty dispute until 1,500 British subjects ask the government to do so flies in the face not only of fundamental rules of international law but also <coughs> elementary logic. 1985, the United Kingdom tried to introduce amendments in the United Nations resolutions to include the principle of self-determination and they were rejected. For the United Nations, for the international community, the principle of self-determination does not apply to this special <coughs> and a particular colonial case. In the decolonization process, the right of self-determination is limited by the territorial integrity as set out in Resolution 1514, which is the resolution that refers specifically to the Malvinas Falkland question. It is about a colonial territory and not a colonized population. It was not an original population that had been colonized. Instead, had been a settlement of British people brought and implanted from the metropolis to the islands while the Argentinians were expelled. <coughs> 
The British government stands amongst to a breach of its obligation under international law to settle international disputes through available peaceful means. This obligation implies positive action and not the mere abstention from the use of force. By rejecting Argentine proposals to negotiate, refusing to accept the good offices of the UN General Secretary, and failing to propose any alternative means of resolving the dispute, the United Kingdom is adopting a stance that is not merely unfriendly, but also illegal. And this is a matter of principles. International law is the matter of principles. Who is interested in prolonging this conflict today? Some polls informs us that British public opinion is divided on this matter. A poll published a month, some months ago by Daily Telegraph among more than, more than 31,000 votes answering the question, should Britain return the Falkland Islands to Argentina? 62% answered yes and only 25% answered no. Among these people, there are many young people that don't want to be identified with a colonial approach. And as reported, some taxpayers that while suffering severe cuts on health, tuition and housing in their own country don't want to support the high cost in defense on those remote islands, as Simon Jenkins calls them, an expensive legacy of empire. Recently, the situation deteriorated further with the militarization of the South Atlantic by the United Kingdom, its unilateral granting of fishing licenses for 25-year periods, and the exploration of hydrocarbons in the Argentine continental shelf. The Malvinas Islands are nowadays one of the most strongly militarized areas in the planet. What is happening today? is a growing military, British military presence in the disputed area, which includes the deployment of a nuclear submarine. The introduction of nuclear weapons in South Atlantic, as you know, is contrary to the Treaty of Tlatelolco, <coughs> to which Britain is a party. South American countries have renounced to weapons of mass destruction. We are a land of peace. The British military escalation then is of concern not only of Argent to Argentina but also to all the countries in the region. I will quote another <coughs> British citizen, Peter Preston, who wrote recently in The Guardian. I quote, a thousand men with planes, boats, railway stations and swimming pools sit in the Falklands supposedly deterring some non-existent invasion with a flotilla of admirals lobbying the treasury Treasury to get the aircraft carriers back. End of the quote. Another sensitive issue is oil exploration. According to United Nations Resolution 3149, no unilateral action can be taken during the decolonization process. It is illegal to explore in the Argentine Sea without permission. It simply is illegal. The exploitation of oil without links with the continent is unfeasible, and I, pre I presume that everyone in this room is aware of this. 
These activities are a source of concern in the region and imply a serious environmental risk which could lead to an ecological disaster such as the one occurred recently in the, recently in the Gulf of Mexico. An article in the Times in April, to, in April this year called BP disaster could be dropped in ocean compared with spill in Falklands states that an oil spill in the islands would be an ecological disaster and could reach Argentinian <coughs> water within a fortnight. In contrast to British unilateral actions, I have recently submitted two notes addressed to the Secretary of State William Hague, proposing an enhanced cooperation with the United Kingdom. Argentina is offering the establishment of regular flights from mainland to the islands operated by, uh, by our uh, national airline, Aerolíneas Argentinas. And we are also proposing the resumption of negotiations to review the mandate of the South Atlantic Fisheries Commission and to cooperate in the conservation of South Atlantic fish stocks in order to avoid depletion. Uh, and I will conclude with, uh, I will conclude saying that in the islands there is a population of 3,000, of which 1,000 are soldiers, and approximately 1,334 persons, 1,334, were born in the islands, distant 13,000 kilometers from London, and 600 kilometers from mainland Argentina, at our doorstep. Is it rational that the wishes of this population rule the relation of two countries and two regions refraining from dialogue? As Peter Preston wrote in The Guardian, geography and common sense dictate a peaceful solution. Thatcher wanted that. <laughs> and I'm positive that it's in the islanders' self-interest to improve links with mainland Argentina. We are committed to respect the interests and way of life of the inhabitants of the islands. They are British. Not only they are British because they've been settled in the islands since the invasion in 1933. They are British by a law passed in 1983. They are British at full rights. And we want to respect the Britishness they are proud to be British, we fully understand it, and we are, we are willing to respect the Britishness and their identity. We are a very friendly country. Islanders know this very well, and that, that's why so often they go for holidays to mainland. We are probably the most Anglophile country in Latin America. We are the, the one with more English speakers. We have the largest British community, around a quarter million of British descendants are living happily and prosperously all over Argentina. And I want to share an extraordinary, with you an extraordinary experience that I had some days ago in a colloquium in the University of Nottingham International Consortium for the Study of Post-Conflict Conflict Studies. We met, among other people, an Argentine Malvinas veteran, 
and five British veterans, one of them a platoon commander of Garkas that fought in the Battle of Tamudam, Malvinas. They, they are having meetings for, they've been meeting veterans in this consortium for the last five years. I was having lunch and dinner with them. We spent two days together talking very friendly, friendly dialogue, and they are strong advocates for reconciliation. My question is if these people who fought each other are ready for reconciliation and dialogue, why can't diplomats and politicians sit around the table? All what we want is to resume negotiations. <coughs> United Kingdom and the Argentine Republic have the opportunity to set an example to the world by resolving this conflict by peaceful and diplomatic means. And above all, we have the responsibility not to leave this conflict and its potential hazards unsolved for future generations. I will now ask uh, Professor George Philip to comment on the intervention. You've just heard two very eloquent, very sincere presentations from people with completely opposing views as to what, the, what should happen to the Falkland Islands. And it seems to me pr pretty clear that majorities of people in Argentina genuinely believe they have a right to um, the, the, the islands and the majority of people in Britain take a different view. It seems to me also pretty obvious that uh, this is not a dispute which is going to be settled by arguments over what might, might or might not have happened in 1833 or through historical points of one sort or another. Sometimes I think that one day um, John Hughes will ring Ambassador Castro and say I've gone through all these documents in the 19th century, I've changed my mind completely, uh, and the <laughs> islands are Argentinian. And Ambassador Castro will say, well actually I've read all the documents now and I've changed my mind, I think they're British after all. High on my list of things that will not happen. Um, what I think determined the outcome of the, the islands was the war of 1982 rather than anything else. Uh, had they not happened, had they not happened, um, I suspect that the British would somehow have allowed the islands to become part of Argentina by looking the other way or by um, some sort of negotiated settlement. I was at a conference at a different university a couple of weeks ago when the Defence Secretary, uh, John Knott, who's now a man in his 80s, but he was Secretary of Defence at the time of the invasion, gave a presentation and he was asked if he had been Prime Minister, would he have sent the task force? And he said, to be honest with you, I know I would not have done. Um, if, it been, if I had been the Prime Minister, the invasion would have led to a change in sovereignty and Argentina would have won. So, you can look at that either way, but that, that was a pretty, pretty direct and sincere admission on his part. And um, it's clear that not only was the 1982 war um, completely convincing in its outcome, but it was completely contingent in how we got there and quite different, quite different possibilities 
of how the war might have ended up um, were discarded during the course of events, but at the, at the beginning, it wasn't self-evidently obvious that um, the invasion was a piece of desperation which was due to fail. On the contrary, the Argentinians, when they launched the invasion, thought it would succeed, and they also thought that um, they would give them support in Argentina, which suggests that there was support in Argentina for the um, invasion, or else the, the argument that this was done for domestic political purposes uh, would not have happened. Now, the ambassador, Cas ambassador Castro says, well, we've changed completely since 1982. I think that's true. Um, I was first in Argentina in 1979, and you could feel the fear, you could feel the oppression, you could feel the way that a small number of very brave people who stood up to the uh, military hunter were really taking their, own, their, their lives in their own hands. And you could really feel that um, as a foreigner trying to understand Argentine politics, you were not entirely welcome in that place. Um, more recently, Argentina has democratised. Not only has it democratised in political terms, it's, I would say it had acquired a democratic culture. Um, when things were difficult economically at the beginning of the millennium, Argentina didn't look at the possibility of a new military intervention. They were content to solve their problems by democratic means. Um, they have actually put human rights abusers in jail to a significant number of cases, which is also something that uh, did not happen in Spain. The Spaniards have been very keen on gratifying human rights abusers in Latin America. But as far as I know, not a single human rights abuser under General Franco uh, has ever served time in the Spanish jail. Um, so Argentina has changed. Yes, that's true. Um, but have the British changed? Well, I think that, that that may also be the case that we have, and not for the better in the terms of, of resolving the dispute by negotiation and, and handing over sovereignty. Um, on the contrary, I think that um, the Falklands are being sort of entrenched in British political folk myth in a way that um, Argentinians don't necessarily fully understand. And although the Ambassador Castro has quoted a poll suggesting that a majority of people in Britain would support the handing over of the islands to Argentina, I think if political debate would ever seriously join, um, the more nationalistic uh, line would win out in, in Britain at any time. I think once blood has been shed uh, and a significant number of people have died in the cause, it becomes very difficult then to pretend that that didn't happen or wash it away with an apology or to say, well, we've changed. Well, yes, you have changed. Argentina has changed. Um, yes, we hear you. Um, but does that mean that we have to change our uh, change the principles that, that, that led us to send the task force? I'm not convinced that that, 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 that is the case. So we, we then have the case that the British are not likely to give up the Falklands um, without being pressured into doing so. What are the chances that the Argentinians are going to be able to press the British into doing so? Well, we, Britain trades about as much with Latin America as it trades with somewhere like Denmark. Um, the amount of economic pressure that Argentina could put on Britain is not very great. Even if it, it had the whole of Latin America on its side, it still would not be very great. And if things became very difficult, um, it seems to me that the American side, which has not always helped the British special relationship as much as the British would like, um, would ultimately come out on the British side. 
uh, the Falklands are perhaps one of the very few areas where the special relationship with the Americans is worked to Britain's advantage um, if you regard the, the uh, holding of the islands as, as being advantageous. So um, I, it seems to me that Argentina is not going to be able to put pressure on significantly to change public opinion in this, in this country. That's a political scientist judgment, which is quite capable of being wrong, but I genuinely think that is the, 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 the situation. Um, I was amused uh, a few months ago, our Foreign Secretary William Haig gave a talk at uh, Canning House when he said that um, the British had neglected Latin America in the past and it's time to give a high priority to our relationship with, with, that, with, with that continent and to try and be friendly in various important ways. Um, when British foreign secretaries make comments of that kind, it always, always strikes me a bit with a certain irony, as reminding me of weather, of weather forecasts. Uh, when the weathermen say it's going to be raining, it's going to rain. If the weather, weather forecast says it's going to be fun and sunny, then it will rain. <laughs> and when William Hague says we're going to be friendly with Latin America, then it will rain. <laughs> So I think that the political factor that uh, no British government will willingly allow a change of sovereignty in, in, in the islands, and it may just be that that's a political fact that we're going to have to, all of us, uh, accept as, as something that's not going to change. It does suggest, of course, that the outcome of a few days in April and May 1982 will determine the outcome of the ownership of the Falklands for many years to come. But um, that may simply be the way the historians will look at it. And it may be that highly contingent outcomes will have long-term and rather lasting consequences, on which next I'll hand over back to the chairman Francisco. Thank you very much, John. I come now to make a selection of questions I think uh, would be central to the discussions. Uh, the first one is from Patricio Vega, Institute of Advanced Legal Studies, sorry, University of London, and that's for, uh, for uh, John Hughes. Uh, the British commitment to defend the wishes of the islanders seems to be an excuse not to talk with Argentina, considering that in the case of Diego Garcia, the UK removed the population without their consent. How can you explain this? What about Diego Garcia's population's human rights to self-determination? Uh, another question for... Uh, for <laughs> 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 oh, okay. I'm going to I think I have one... Only two for you, and I'm very Another question. I'll read the question and then I'll give you... A question for Mr. Hughes. Has the British government consulted the opinion of the inhabitants of Hong Kong before negotiating with China? Why, in the case of the Malvinas Fortress, the British position is so different? Now, a question, the question for Ambassador Castro, the first one by Martin London, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Can the ambassador envisage a process of negotiation with the UK and the Falkland Islanders that results in an outcome? reaffirming either UK sovereignty or the right of the islanders to choose. 
Is that even theoretically possible, or must the outcome lead to Argentine sovereignty? A question from Maria Rodriguez, Argentina, LCIDS Master Diplomacy in International Strategy. Question from Ambassador Alicia Castro. Given the fact that the Argentinian government is turning to creativity to reinitiate dialogue, uh, even Mrs. Castro has raised her voice during a human rights convention convention in the UK. Do you think there's still room for more uninnovative diplomatic skills and tools to go forward? And the last question also for Ambassador Castro uh, from Dr. Nicola, Nicholas Bowen. Over the last 30 years, what do you think are the key mistakes, if any, made by successive Argentine governments <coughs> in the handling of relations between the UK and Argentina over the four plus Malvinas? Similarly, what do you think are the key mistakes made by the UK government? To what extent is probably that particular third countries can act in ways to mediate between the UK and Argentina? If so, which countries might perform this job? So, if you want to. Yes, sure. Thank you. Um, the question of negotiations. Um, I think I've tried to, uh, to indicate that if you say to people, the ambassador has mentioned, her role as a trade union negotiator uh, with, I think, Guyolinus Argentinus uh, many years ago. Uh, if you say, let's sit down and talk, that sounds great. I'm sure everybody in this room would say, yeah, fine, let's sit down and talk. But if you say, let's sit down and talk, and at the end of this discussion, I'm telling you what the outcome of this negotiation is, then people might hold back a little bit. Uh, because a negotiation that says, let's sit down and talk, and by the time we all leave this room, we have all agreed that Argentina will have the sovereignty of the Falklands. That's not a negotiation. That's a capitulation. That's how strong this is. And it's important we understand what negotiations mean. If you go in to negotiate, most people, most trade unionists with their employers, most diplomats arguing in the United Nations, you don't necessarily expect that you're going to walk out with a 100% victory. You expect compromise. So, so my question is, if Argentina is so concerned about negotiation, the way they could make the concept of negotiation real is to say that everything's possible. We can negotiate, and it's possible that Argentina won't get sovereignty at the end of this negotiation. But I have never, ever heard and represented the Argentine government say that it is conceivable that a negotiation could end up not leading to Argentine sovereignty. So forgive me, the British government is not saying we don't like negotiations. What the British government is saying, we don't like negotiations where you tell us what the outcome's going to be. And particularly so when we say to the people who actually live there, you have the right to decide for yourself. You have a democratic right. The Falkland Islanders run their own government. You, you can bandy colonialism around, but I have to say, 
the countries of Latin America were formed out of colonialism. There weren't indigenous populations. There were indigenous populations. But let's not go for the salt water fallacy of colonialism. The colonialism only happens when you get in the boat. You can, you, you can extend your territory. You, you can cause genocide. But if it's within a country, and I'm not going to name them, then that's okay. I don't think so. It's exactly the same. I'm not here to defend colonialism. I'm here to say that if you look at the map of the world in 1833, and you, Argentina wants to take us back to that in terms of the Falklands, look at the map of the world today. Look how many people have had self-determination, exercised their rights to self-determination, not just in the old empires, Obviously, Argentina did. <coughs> Latin Americans did, and did it a long, long time ago. Look at the map of Europe 50, 60 years ago and compare it with the map of Europe today. You will see lots of people, large, small, have decided they have the right to self-determination. And when the documents that I quoted talk vividly, they talk about people. The people who live on the Falklands have a right, and no British government is going to take that right away. And let me add, I think George hit the nail on the head, and I tried to explain that the Argentine invasion, I know, I used to deal with Jorge Tarana, who was a very good Argentine foreign minister. And I can remember sitting there with Jorge. I used to work on human rights in, in Chile in, in an early incarnation. And I can remember him telling me that on the 2nd of April, he was in a jail in Chile, in, in the province of Chile. He had absolutely nothing to do with that nasty military dictatorship any more than Ambassador Castro did. So nobody is trying to say that Argentina is not a democratic country. Nobody is trying to say that Argentina is not entitled to change policy. But what we can say is you can't wipe out, you can't reverse history and say the Argentine invasion by a nasty military <coughs> dictatorship that was nasty and horrible to the people of Argentina, you can't wipe it off, off history. <coughs> what they did has consequences. Those consequences fall on succeeding Argentine governments, even though they had nothing to do with it. So it does seem to me that we need to understand the nature of negotiations. We need to understand colonialism isn't just about going across the sea to set up colonies. Uh, and yes, Hong Kong and Diego Garcia are different. They're different in the case of Hong Kong that I know a bit about. Um, because the new territories were taken on a lease. Originally, the new territories were always on a lease. It wasn't something that the Chinese had to impose. It was true. We took a lease on the new territories. So that's a rather different situation. Both sides recognized at the very beginning that there was a lease arrangement. That's rather different from a lease arrangement in which the people of the Falklands are not consulted. 
Jane Garcia, forgive me, I wouldn't claim to know a lot other than a little bit that I've seen in newspapers. It doesn't fill me with great pride what seems to have happened there, and I'll be quite honest about it. But I don't see the relevance, frankly, to to, our, to the Falklands, where clearly when, when in 1830, uh, 1833, there were very few civilians on the island, there was no indigenous population, for many centuries, the French, the Dutch, the Americans, the Brits, the Scandinavians went there, as well as the Spanish. They were sealers and whalers. That's why they were going to an uninhabited island. So analogies, frankly, between what I'm not very proud of seems to have happened in Diego Garcia and 1833, forgive me, just not what. <laughs> I'm not. I'm. I'm deprived of the, the privilege of 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 speaking in my in my in my la in my tongue um, in my mother tongue. So I I cannot be as subtle as I wish. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are many nuances here. Um, Martin. Is this a question of yours? Yes. Okay, that's very nice, because if I address Hague in, in Lancaster House, <laughs> you are very welcome to address me in a public conference, and I think it should be this way. There's nothing wrong with that. It's only about transparency. If I could see a process of negotiations with you again, if I, well, I'm not, I'm not here to speculate. And I cannot give you all the answers. All what I am allowed to say is that we are determined that to, we need to have a dialogue. The international community is calling upon a dialogue, <coughs> and I won't speculate in which the results of this dialogue could be. I mean, of course, it has to be the proper dialogue in the proper place and time. So I cannot speculate on the outcome of the negotiations. I can answer, yes, what you say if a negotiation with the UK and the Falkland Islanders as a three-party no, and you know the answer for this. Are, we don't have three parties because the resolution 2065 of the United Nations and the other resolution, every resolution since then, um, recognize a dispute between two parties, the United Kingdom and Argentina, on the sovereignty on the so-called Malvinas Question Islands. <coughs> the, the inhabitants of the islanders are British, <coughs> can assist negotiations in the side of the British governments. We don't have a three parties here, we have a two parties negotiation. To Nicholas Bowen, over the last 30 years, what do you think are the, the key mistakes, <coughs> if any, made by successive Argentine governments and the handling of relations between UK and Argentina over the Falkland Mal Malvinas? I don't have a formal answer. Where's, where, where's Nicholas? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. 
Me particularly, I don't, I don't like the men and the men and uh, the men and negotiations, <laughs> <laughs> the hunting of teddy bears. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it was a quite a, quite a naive and uh, demagogic uh, situation, and and at the same time they weren't taking care of what, what was happening with oil, for instance, while they're doing negotiations. But it's not of not surprise, but because that government didn't take care of, of what happening what was happening with oil in mainland Argentina. So I particularly don't like those negotiations at that time. The key mistakes made by the UK government clearly we we are talking about the war here and and John Hughes again stated that that the war has uh, consequences. Of course, it was. But but you are working with Je with Germany, as far as I know, and, and you have a you have a, a, a wider war, a bigger war, and uh, 30 years after the, the World War, it would be like 1975 and you were, were already friends of Germany after the war and you are not already talking to Argentina and that's, that's amazing. And uh, so of course the war has consequences but there is a reconciliation time, a dialogue time and uh, believe me we hate that war more than you do. Not only because our people were killed but because they were killed in the middle of 30,000 people tortured and killed. Uh, so the mistakes by the, the UK government uh, that they, uh, they are, don't want to sit around the table and talk or have a dialogue and negotiate. We already said that many times. And the United the unilateral actions that are opposed to Resolution 1349 of the United Nations in terms of militarization, because it's clear that that resolution clearly states that while it's the decolonization process is taking place, there cannot be unilateral actions from either side. They've been granting fisheries, fish, fish permissions for 25 years, and there are five companies exploring oil though they will never be able to exploit the oil in Argentine Sea without Argentine permission. So those, I think, though, are the, the key mistakes. And third countries can act in way to mediate. They've been doing that since 1965. The whole of the United Nations are trying to mediate. After the war, again, they urged both parties to resume negotiations, but uh, United Kingdom is not answering to that international calls from <coughs> every country that belongs to United Nations. And I had a person from Argentina, a woman from Argentina, Maria Rodriguez. Can I speak Spanish with Maria Rodriguez? Maria is asking me if, given the fact that the Argentinian government is turning to creativity to reinitiate dialogue, Ms. Castro has raised her voice during a human rights conversation in the UK. Do you think? Well, first of all, let me tell you that I raised my voice. I mean, 
We were in the question time. It, it, it I, is a nice way. To no, I know, I know. It is put in a nice way. But just in case there's somebody that is seeing it in a not nice way, <laughs> because some people see, didn't see it in a nice way. I didn't interrupt uh, Minister Haig. I, I was giving the word when we were in the questions times, and I raised my hand. He gave me the word, and I made those two very simple questions. Are you open to negotiate for negotiations? Will you give peace a chance? And simple as they are, they are not having any answer. Not then, not today. Um, do you think there is a, a room for more and innovative diplomatic skills and tools? Wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> I have just one last question for each of you. The first is from Susanna White for Ambassador uh, Hughes. Uh, is the UK planning to leave this conflict unsolved for future generations? And the second one is from Mancia Ball. Uh, it's said for the panel, but I think it's really addressed to Ambassador Castro. Let's assume that sovereignty moves to Argentina and that the people of the islands remain opposed. What will Argentina's approach be to the people of the islands to win their <coughs> parts and money? Uh, I don't think it's within the power of the UK to decide the outcome of what happens over the next <coughs> decade. Uh, three interests are involved here. If we are to succeed in resolving the problem, the interests of the three need to be put together. We need, if this is ever going to be resolved, to have a proper negotiation with three parties who are willing to negotiate. Whether that happens or not, I can't <coughs> predict. What I can predict is it's not within the control of the British government to make it happen. It's a short answer, but that's really how I say it. And the other one? Or do you no, I, to I thought there was one. No, there's yeah. only one question. Yeah, there was one saying if you want to leave the peace conflict and solve for the future generations. I mean, there must be a confusion here or a propaganda. <laughs> there are 1,334 people in these remote islands living 600 kilometers from Argentina, from mainland Argentina, that are apparently very unhappy with us, though they are having holidays in mainland. And there is a quarter million, 250,000 British people living happily in mainland Argentina. Why it's so particular about these islands antagonism, either than propaganda. 
other than being used as an excuse not to negotiate. Because it's very, it's, it's almost like, how many of you know, uh, have been in, in Argentina? So you all know that we have pubs. <laughs> we drink beer. We, also, we do all sort of ridiculous things like going to British school and singing, singing God Save the Queen every day. <laughs> Believe me, we do. Um, we use quilts. We have entire neighbors, neighborhoods in, in British architecture. Uh, name it. We have the Welsh uh, Patagonia people, the Welsh community living in Patagonia and eating the, the, the wonderful <coughs> black cake, <laughs> which is very good. British, Welsh, Irish, Scottish people—they are—they are a very respectful community. Very, very respectful and loved community. Among them there are landowners, um, comerciantes, professors, academics, name it. And we play polo together, we... Uh, so, what is wrong with 1,334 people that don't want the same thing that a quarter million people living 600 kilometers from them are so very fond of propaganda, political propaganda, antagonism, excuses to keep this military base in the South Atlantic. That is all about. So, of course, we are more than ready to give the same respect and love to the inhabitants of the islands that we give to every community on the planet that are well received in Argentina. We respect every identity. We are known for that. We are a very open and very extremely friendly country, especially with British descendants for many reasons, cultural links, because you are beautiful and <laughs> we want to be with you. We want to, we always wanted to have blue eyes, I think. <laughs> so, believe me, I mean, there, there's no, there, it's a, it's fabricado, it's a... Fabrication. It's a fabrication of, of, uh, of some very small parts of, 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 of people. I mean, we are 60 million people in, in, in United Kingdom and 40 million people in Argentina and those 1,034 people that apparently don't like us though they go for holidays to <laughs> are obstructing dialogue I don't know if that was a proper answer there. <laughs> um, maybe a long one we are well past the time of finishing this uh, they said that every long journey uh, start with the first step and maybe sometime in the future when this conflict will be solved and I'm sure it will because all com harder conflict has been solved uh, somebody will remember this meeting as one of the first steps towards the resolution I would like sincerely to thank our three participants for 
their presentation. I think they have been extremely interesting and thorough. And thank you very much again.